Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a bunch of amazing articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. Well, are you guys having some weird or vivid dreams that have been escalating either in terms of frequency or intensity as of late? No, I take huh. meds to prevent that. <laughs> <laughs> smart. Smart. What about yeah, you, Ed? No dreamland for Jen. That's, That's dangerous. Right. That's right. Knock me out, man. Uh, I've had a couple of vivid, intense ones lately. Uh, one about anxiously throwing a party hmm. towards the end of the pandemic, I think, but being very mm-hmm. anxious about getting everybody food. Mm. But it was nice. I got to see some people that I don't know in reality. (laughs) That's always the upshot to dreams, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, the CBC is reporting that sleep researchers say you are far from alone if you've been having weird or vivid dreams over the past year. And apparently being chased by swarms of bugs is among the most popular unusual dream people Mm. are having right now. So Jeff Huang of Brown University gathered data from about 100,000 sleep app users around the world. And in addition to seeing patterns of insomnia and anxiety, the team also found that people are sleeping longer and later during the pandemic. Hmm. So in North America, people were sleeping in about 45 minutes later on average. In Sweden, it was only about 15 minutes. But in Russia, it was about 90 minutes. And in part, this is because most vivid, immersive, and the kind of spatial, temporal, emotional dreams usually happen in the morning, according to Elizaveta Somomneva, a sleep researcher and postdoctoral fellow at McGill University in Montreal. She has been leading the dream aspect of a Canadian study called How Are You Coping? <laughs> so <laughs> polite and Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> so in that study, sleep issues have figured prominently in the responses as well as the dream. So in the first few months of the pandemic, we didn't have a lot of strong visual imagery associated with the global experience of lockdown. But many people were confined to their homes. So the one most repeated dreams reporting in the study was somehow feeling stuck or unproductive. Things like trying to catch a plane or a bus and just not making it. Probably not a huge surprise, right? Sure. That's like your basic stress dream. Yeah. Exactly. You're describing my reality. Right, right. (laughs) So this was probably a reflection of a more existential condition that we're finding ourselves in. But she's not the only one collecting dream submissions. Even Harvard Medical School Associate Professor Deirdre Barrett just finished a book called Pandemic Dreams that was based on 9,000 dream submissions. She's long been fascinated by dreaming in times of crisis, and she maintains this health crisis is a standout for the capacity of people to recall the dreams and for their lucidity. So, for example, after 9-11, perhaps unsurprisingly, there were a lot of submissions of plane crashes or attacks, but there were also many accounts of natural disasters like an earthquake or a tsunami, and she has seen that phenomenon repeat this time as well. But there is a metaphor in the mix with the pandemic she has never encountered before, 
And that's the bugs. And this is from North America to Italy to France. Again、hmm. and again, survey respondents wrote of swarms coming after them in their dreams. Sometimes it's bees and hornets flying at them. Sometimes it's armies of cockroaches. And of course, bugs as a metaphor for a virus is not much of a stretch, right? No.、Um, and I mean, even with that article from Australia where they have literal spiders coming after them, <laughs> that doesn't seem that unusual at all. Correct. It's basically people reporting a sense of. Something dirty or unclean about the whole experience. And, you know, other people are having dreams full of anxiety or filth. They go into detail about how gross some of these bug dreams are. You can go to the link and read it. <laughs> you know, we don't want to upset your day too much. But there's a theory that University of Toronto postgrad researcher Noor Abbas, along with her colleagues Leela McKinnon and Eric Achilles, that our dreams are themselves a test, right? The suggestion is that dreaming may have evolved to specialize in rehearsing risky events in an alternate sphere that eliminates the real risk or harm. So it's kind of a dress rehearsal for real life, right? And I guess, I mean, it does explain why people don't generally show up to school or work in their underwear because they've all dreamed about it and practiced because <laughs> they don't have to. That's true. Yeah, yeah, you dream about that enough times and you make darn sure to put on that underwear、That's、hopefully、right. before <laughs> the rest of your clothing. Yeah.、Mm -hmm. Next link. Next link. link. This article comes to us from earther.gizmodo.com. And you've probably heard about this, but explosive eruption rocks St. Vincent as Soufriere volcano spews ash across the Caribbean. Yeah.、Huh. So on Friday, the small Caribbean island of St. Vincent became the epicenter of the seismic world when La Soufriere volcano sent a cloud of ash flying 20,000 feet or 6,096 meters、wow. into the sky and streaming across the Atlantic. So, the volcano's been rumbling for months, but authorities raised alert levels to red in the northern tier of the island on Thursday after tremors began to indicate a new phase could be beginning.、Mm. And swarms of earthquakes racked the volcano throughout the day, and the dome sitting at the top of the volcano increased significantly in height, according to the National Emergency Organization for St. Vincent and the Grenadines, or、uh, NEMO SVG. And <laughs> those, yeah, those are all telltale warning signs that were confirmed on Friday morning with NEMO. SVG tweeting, explosive eruption confirmed.、Yeesh. And yeah, photos showed a towering column of ash over the volcano as residents in the red zone were urged to evacuate immediately. Nemo SVG said ashfall was reported 10 miles、wow. to the southeast at Argyle International Airport. Prevailing winds have also steered a massive plume of ash east across the open waters of the Atlantic, and satellites caught the explosion as well as the ash plume, just showing the magnitude of the event. <sighs> and I saw some of the photos and videos being posted on Twitter, including from people who are evacuating, and it's just wild. Like,、yeah. people are pointing their cameras straight up at the sky, and it's half blocked with ash and,、yeah. and a huge <sighs> smoke cloud. It's really, really frightening. Yeah, that's so hard to imagine that scale. I mean, that's a height that planes fly at.、Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. So, Jasmine Scarlett, a historical and social volcanologist who studied La Soufriere, said in an email Given the history, we can expect to see a sustained ash plume with multiple explosions. Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez gave a tearful press conference on Friday, saying that the government would continue to work to keep all residents safe. Officials also warned that Friday's eruption might not be the last or even the biggest.、Mm -hmm. The ash column is starting to fall back down around the volcano. It is possible that there will be some property damage. This could go on for days, weeks, or even months. 
Oof. So they can just never go home. I mean, they they've evacuated, but it's not like they get yeah. to go back in a week because it's still going right. to be an issue. Yeah, exactly. Like this is an ongoing, evolving process for this volcano to get its tantrum over with. I, I don't know what metaphor you use <laughs> yeah. here, but like, yeah. Even before Friday's blow up, evacuations were ongoing. Royal Caribbean and Carnival both announced they were sending cruise ships to help. And Carnival said that they would take precautions to help ensure enough distance for evacuees, which will be a challenge on ships that have proved to be petri dishes for yeah. COVID. <laughs> that said, the Post reports that Gonzalez has mandated vaccinations for cruise ship evacuees, and he was strongly recommending that anyone going to emergency facilities also get the shot. Hmm. Relying on a natural disaster to up vaccination rates isn't exactly normal protocol, as the article points out. Yeah. But then 2021 has also been anything but by the book so far. Mm-hmm. And as of Friday morning, the New York Times reported that roughly 20,000 people near La Soufrière had been evacuated. Oof. At least nobody's died so far. That's good news. Yeah. 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 It's great that they've been so prepared. And I guess if you live on an island with a volcano, you kind of have to be. Yeah. So, good on them. <laughs> well, speaking of weird ways to convince people to get vaccinated, I saw a thing from I think it was a French organization where they did a study and they basically said, We've determined that the most reluctant people to get it are like 20-something conservative men. And so they started a campaign highlighting the fact that long COVID can sometimes have a symptom of erectile dysfunction. And so, like, (laughs) they're really pushing that. Like, if you want to protect that, you better get your shot, which is just fascinating Mm -hmm. to me, the angles that people will take. I mean, you know what? If it takes a volcano, fine. Like, whatever. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Well, this one from Kyle Orland at Ars Technica is called How a Speedrunner Broke Super Mario Brothers' Biggest Barrier. So first off, let's talk about speedrunning. It's a particular style of gameplay where the only goal is to beat a video game in the shortest time possible. Speedrunners. Oh, yeah. I love speedruns. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stress me out. <laughs> well, speedrunners don't care about the points or the extra items or anything except getting to the end, right? Mm-hmm. And like all things digital, a thriving community has built up around the people who are really into this. Maybe Way's part of it. But <laughs> 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 aside from the various message boards where people share their tips and tricks, there is an official site, speedrun.com, where you can use approved software to record and register your best runs for any game out there because this is a philosophy more than a specific game so like super mario mm-hmm. brothers is in there because it's one of the uh, one of the classics but you mm-hmm. can do this for any game if you decide you want to true so one of the big rules in the speedrunning community is that a human has to be pushing the buttons because it's possible to just program a perfect run and that's known as a tool assisted speed run or tas and there is a place for it tas's are still useful because they set a benchmark for what is theoretically possible And then bit by bit, the human speedrunners try to inch closer to that goal. Hmm. So in the case of Super Mario Brothers, the fastest TAS, which remains unbroken since 2011, sets the limit at 4 minutes, 54.03 seconds. And like that's beating the entire game from the first world to the entire rescuing the princess Four and a half minutes. Well, I mean, five are, are we encountering like the warps that will like help you skip over worlds and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. That... Yeah, yeah. You use the okay. warps and you also get to use bugs. So ah. for the TAS, it would actually be impossible for a human to pull off because it relies on an acceleration bug that requires oh. pushing both the left and right directional buttons at the same time, which you can't do on an original Super NES controller. So Mm -hmm. it's considered acceptable to take advantage of a bug if it's part of the original code and hardware. 
but you can't do anything that a kid in the 80s with a physical copy of the game couldn't have done. Mm. So, you know, when someone finds a new bug that shaves off a few milliseconds, it spreads like wildfire through the community. As the article notes, discussing these glitches in full detail would take an entire separate article, but they do list a few of the standard ones just to give you an idea of what kind of precision these players are operating at. So, for example, moving Mario with sub-pixel precision allows a player to get Mario's foot partially stuck in a wall. And if you time (laughs) it just right and then jump repeatedly from that position, Mario can run all the way through certain walls, which saves (laughs) a fraction of a second in some key spots of the game. And that's the kind of level that we're talking about where people are like, I save one-tenth of a second, and that puts me in the leaderboard. (laughs) And if you do a version of this wall-clipping move at the base of the flag at the end of each level, you can skip the flag-lowering animation, which saves a huge amount of time. Huh. There's also the wrong warp bug, which happens because the game can only load one value at a time in the memory slot for where does a pipe go. So by carefully scrolling Mario's position on the screen and then backtracking just as the next pipe value is loaded, you can fool the game into loading the wrong value and warping Mario to an unintended location. (laughs) So, you know, even though it sounds like cheating, it's important to remember that in order to do these types of moves... The player has to be moving with frame-perfect precision. And this game runs at 60 frames per second. So when we say frame-perfect, that's 1 60th of a second. And these guys are so good at this that they've even held exhibitions where they play blindfolded because they've got the muscle memory down just like they were playing a musical instrument. Wow. Yeah. The other big thing about Super Mario Bros. speedrunning in particular is the so-called frame rule. So basically, each level ends with a blackout screen while it loads the next level, and these Mm -hmm. are triggered on a steady 21-frame timer. So it's a little like a bus that leaves for the next level every 0.35 seconds. Even if you get to the end of the level a few frames earlier, you end up waiting for the same bus and not saving any time. So when Mm -hmm. a new human record is set, it's almost always a 0.35-second improvement over the previous best. And to get back to the actual subject of this article, that is, in fact, exactly what user Niftsky has just pulled off. (laughs) His final time, which he was streaming live when it happened, was 4 minutes 54.948 seconds, which is just nine frames off the theoretical human limit calculated by the TAS. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Aside from pulling off every standard move perfectly, which is an unbelievable feat in itself, He Uh innovated a few new moves, including letting go of the right directional button for exactly two frames in the middle of the level, which is just one thirtieth of a second. Like, I don't even think I could move my hand that fast if I wanted to, (laughs) let alone on command when you're supposed to. Right. And when that final time came in, everyone watching knew what he had done. The all caps comments flooded the screen and Nifty himself is on the recording. He starts screaming and saying, come on, dude, stay calm. Don't throw up. But like, <laughs> this is super important to these guys. The article compared it to speedrunning's version of the four minute mile. Like having broken wow. this this level is just amazing for these guys who care about this stuff. And I mean, these are so fun to watch just towards the very end because like when they beat these records, they lose yeah. their minds. Yeah. Like they are so excited. <laughs> it's it's amazing. It's incredible. Well, it's under five minutes. You can watch the whole thing. Like they have the video yeah. of his run in the article and you can, I mean, you can sit there and watch it. I was having this like nostalgia of like, oh yeah, I remember that level. And oh yeah. Oh, 
the game's over. Like, he just beat the whole thing. <laughs> That's astonishing. And he's not resting on his laurels. Nifsky already has plans to set new records, including one for Minus World, which is a level that is an entire bug in and of itself and isn't supposed to be included in the game. But everybody knows how to get there, and beating it in a particular time is also part of the glory, I guess you could say. <laughs> I feel like I'm not doing enough with my life. I don't know. But you know what? If they're having fun, there's something to be said for pushing yourself to a particular limit. And of course. there's dexterity involved. I mean, like I said, you, they've got a camera on the guy's face, but they also have a camera on his hands. And you can watch what he's doing. Ooh, wow. It's just, Yeah, it's like a piano player, but way more precise. It's very cool looking. <laughs> so I got to recommend for anybody who's interested in this topic, there's a tool-assisted speedrun explanation video called... Super Mario 64 Rolling Rocks 0.5 A presses. <laughs> so this person explains how he was able to beat a level using half a press of a button, Ugh. including very technical details of like what that means, how it works. What? There's like a whole side dialogue into like the parallel universe mechanic. It's 30 minutes long and it's absolutely worth your time because <laughs> you're going to be clutching your head by the end of it just in sheer <laughs> awe of the amount of detail that they go into. Anyways, that's my recommendation very into these videos <laughs> whenever Apparently. they come up <laughs> yeah it just goes to show we haven't lost any of our skill or artistry we've just redirected it to other things you know mm -hmm. like mozart yeah. was really good at the violin and this kid's really good at super mario brothers like it's still <laughs> finger dexterity <laughs> yeah i mean hilariously nowadays i think violinists are more nerdy than video game players so oh sure and i i say that as a former viola player so i agree oh. <laughs> <laughs> next link Next, Next link. link. Well, let's let's stay with this internet nerd kind of theme here. Inputmag.com is ready to make you feel old because do you remember Neon Cat? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's 10 years old. Okay. Oh. Well, <laughs> that's fine. Mortality comes for us all. <laughs> well, to be fair, that's not the salient point of this article. Uh, Input Mag is kind of on its 10-year retrospective of Neon Cat, and it's looking at Chris Torres of Dallas, hmm. and he created it back in April 2011. So it's a really nice retrospective that kind of goes into like how it was born, how it evolved, and even how he actually got some money from it, despite how difficult it is for people who make memes or viral content to really get the monetary compensation that the popularity typically warrants. So, so he did it, huh? Well, it took about 10 years, but he's done <laughs> he it. now. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So at the time, he was a digital artist with a very small following on his website, LOL Comics. A few weeks earlier, after a disastrous magnitude 9.0 earthquake hit Japan, which unleashed that massive tsunami, he set yeah. up an impromptu charity live stream where he would doodle viewers' requests while taking in donations for the Red Cross. He had one fan who requested a cat, and then another fan requested a Pop-Tart, and lo and behold, he decided to combine <laughs> the two ideas into one doodle. <laughs> it was a gray cat that looked like his own pet named Marty, but with a pink Pop-Tart body. I know you have it in your head right now. It's smiling as it prances through space and it leaves behind a rainbow trail in its mist as though it were a shooting star. However, some fans mm -hmm. say the cat appears to be farting rainbows. <laughs> 
Regardless of what you think the cat is doing, it wasn't until April 5th that a YouTuber mashed up this gif with a song called Nyan 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 by a virtual vocaloid, which is a computerized <laughs> singer. Uh-huh. And that was the birth of Nyan Cat as we know it today. And it's not like cats have been absent from the internet, right? We've had sure. Grumpy Cat, Coughing Cat, mm. Keyboard Cat, Kitty Cat Dance. But by the summer of 2011, Nyan Cat was everywhere. There were cosplays. There was an official video game. YouTube had even added a custom Nyan Cat progress bar to the video. But for Torres, being Nyan Cat guy wasn't always Pop-Tarts and Rainbows. <laughs> he was traveling the world. He was attending different meme conferences and cat video conventions. Wow. But it was difficult to balance the demands of being a meme creator with those of his day job. And so there came a point later where he just had to choose. Do I stick with this insurance adjusting or do I give it a chance and see where Nyan Cat takes me? <laughs> he eventually decided he put all his time and energy into this and it was the best choice he ever made. So he was going to all these meme conferences like RaffleCon and he would make new friends who were on similar roller coasters of internet virality like Keyboard Cat and Scumbag Steve. Do you guys remember Scumbag Steve? It's like the guy in the doorway and he's wearing this fancy hat and coat and he's used for a lot of like Chad memes. Oh, yeah. I do know that one. Yeah, yeah I yeah. wasn't I wasn't picturing it until you said Chad memes. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's... counterpart to good guy Greg. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all have names and I don't know them, but it's... I know them when I see them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's a distinct difference between going viral for cat content like Nyan Cat or going viral for a photo of yourself like mm-hmm. Scumbag Steve, mm-hmm. whose actual name is Blake Boston. <laughs> I don't know that that's much better. Like, I, you know, I feel for the guy, but. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to become famous for a meme that changes the name but calls you a scumbag, that's kind yeah. of smart a little bit. And the history of Scumbag Steve was that in 2011, a photo from his amateur high school rap album, and he's wearing a backward snapback <laughs> hat, an oversized fur coat, and he became the butt of the internet's jokes, his face associated with scumbag behavior, like going to a high school party when you're 25, which, to be clear, is not the origin of that photo. It's just an association that has kind of come about, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, all these meme guys would go out and people would be like, oh, scumbag Steve, I need to take your photo. And when it came to Torres, the Nyan Cat guy, he didn't tell anybody who he was. Scumbag Steve would get all the attention. Someone would recognize him everywhere they went. And so he really enjoyed the ability to remain anonymous in public. But there was one common hurdle he shared with all the meme creators, which is maintaining ownership of the work, right? Like within two mm-hmm. weeks of posting Nyan Cat, he was already fighting to prove his copyright. People were filing forms to copyright the image, and it took him two years to prove ownership of his work, and it wasn't easy. The problem became public in November 2012 when Warner Brothers and Fifth Cell released the video game Scribblenauts Unlimited. Does anyone remember this game? No. Mm-hmm. Great game. <laughs> okay. I'm really showing my nerd cred in this episode. <laughs> right. Like, absolutely. I know that game. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are different levels of the nerd spectrum. I remember Nyan Cat. And when I told my husband, hey, it's 10 years old, he goes, what's 10 years old? So, you know, we, we're all on a spectrum right. of nerdiness yeah. here. Regardless, when Warner Brothers and Fifth Cell released this Scribblenauts unlimited game. It included Nyan Cat and Keyboard Cat as characters, but they did not ask permission from Torres and Charlie Schmidt, who was the person Mm -hmm. behind Keyboard Cat. So 
They sued for a violation of copy and trademark rights, and they received a settlement for an undisclosed sum in 2013, a year later. Obviously, they're not at liberty to discuss the settlement, but there was little money involved. Sure. So over the years, Torres continued to iterate on Nyan Cat. Between 2012 and 2016, he made Nyan Cat gifts with New Year's glasses. In 2019, the game Nyan Cat Lost in Space, originally created in 2011 as an app, was released for the Nintendo Switch. You can play that probably today. But mm -hmm. the most important recent development of Neon Cat is that it became an NFT, a non-fungible token. Wow. Yeah. So Foundation, which is a highly exclusive platform for NFT artists, released Chris Torres's remastered Neon Cat as an NFT. And on February 19th, the GIF sold for 300 Ethereum, which is worth about $574,000 at the time of the sale. Yeah, time to get out of that market now. Like sell <laughs> and get out because... That's right. That's right. Diversify now. That's a different story from my financial <laughs> advice universe. Anyway, Torres still lives in Dallas. He's a self-employed digital artist. And after his landmark sale, other meme makers who never got proper attribution for their work started reaching out. And within days, he was getting emails from dozens of creators and they all had the same story where they made something big and it got away from them and they wanted some way to get it back and have proper attribution for their work. And so in March, he collaborated with Foundation to host a week of auctions dubbed hashtag meme economy. So he worked with meme creators, many of whom he first met at places like RaffleCon and helped them understand the process of selling their works as NFTs. Those sales auctioned off NFTs of Bad Luck Brian, Coffee <laughs> Cat, Scumbag Steve. I mean, even Scum Bag Steve sold his image for about 30 Ethereum, which is about 57 grand. And not bad. Right. Yeah. He, he tweeted, whoever this buyer is, thank you. You have no idea what this means to me and my two boys. Adding, Aww. meme life just got sweet as F word. And Aww. I'm saying F word, but he, he <laughs> typed sure, out the yeah, whole yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's scumbag Steve. Of course he used the real word. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, to see him get some monetary compensation after being understood and recognized by the world as a scumbag, man, yeah. I wish he would have made more. <laughs> so that's what years of humiliation is worth, is about 57000 Okay. All right. That's it. <laughs> exactly. No. See, I'm very curious about the person who added the music. Like, at what point does Neon Cat as a whole stop being his? You know what I mean? Right. Because it was his as Pop-Tart Cat, but it really yeah. was adding that song. I mean, right now, it just has the accreditation to a YouTuber named Sarah J00N. You know, maybe she'll come and try to get a little bit of credit for it, but I'm not a copyright intellectual property lawyer. I doubt even sure, lawyers yeah. today would be able to say something conclusive, but uh -huh. it's nice to see these viral meme creators actually getting some money. <laughs> Assuming they sell off their Ethereum, because right now they don't have money. Like They, they have <laughs> another ridiculous thing that is not real and that's just... Super fair. I will amend that to say it's nice to see the meme creators getting credit. Right, that's something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com, and it's titled The Rice of the Sea, How a Tiny Grain Could Change the Way Humanity Eats. Ooh. Oh. So Angel Leon paid little attention to the meadows of seagrass that fringe the turquoise waters near his home, and it was only decades later, as he was fast becoming known as one of the country's most innovative chefs, that he noticed something he had missed in previous encounters with Zostera Marina, a clutch of tiny green grains clinging to the base of the eelgrass. Mm. And his culinary instincts, honed over the years in the kitchen of his restaurant Eponiente, kicked in. 
lab tests hinted at its tremendous potential. Gluten-free, high in omega-6 and 9 fatty acids, and contains more than 50% protein than rice per grain. Whoa! All of it growing without fresh water or fertilizer. The find has set the chef, whose restaurant won its third Michelin star in 2017, on a mission to recast the common eelgrass as a potential superfood. Leon says, in a world that is three quarters water, it could fundamentally transform how we see oceans. Mm. This could be the beginning of a new concept of understanding the sea as a garden. It's a sweeping statement that would raise eyebrows from anyone else, but Leon, known across Spain as El Chef del Mar, the chef of the sea, has long pushed the boundaries of seafood, fashioning chorizos out of discarded fish parts and serving sea-grown versions of tomatoes and pears at his restaurant near the Bay of Cadiz. He says, when I started a Poniente 12 years ago, my goal was to open a restaurant that served everything that has no value in the sea. The first years were awful because nobody understood why I was serving customers produce that nobody wanted. (laughs) So after stumbling across the grain in 2007, Leon began looking for any mention of Zostera Marina being used as food. And he finally found an article from 1973 in the journal Science on how it was an important part of the diet of the Seri, an indigenous people living on the Gulf of California in Sonora, Mexico, and the only known case of a grain from the sea being used as a human food source. Hmm. Next came the question of whether the perennial plant could be cultivated. In the Bay of Cadiz, the once abundant plant had been reduced to an area of just four square meters, echoing a decline seen around the world. Yeah, as seagrass meadows reel from increased human activity along coastlines and steadily rising water temperatures. So working with a team at the University of Cadiz and researchers from the regional government, a pilot project was launched to adapt three small areas across a third of a hectare or 0.75 acres of salt marshes into what Leon calls a marine garden. And it was not until 18 months later, after the plants had produced grains, that Leon steeled himself for the ultimate test, uh, said Juan Martin, a Poniente's environmental manager. Martin says, Angel came to me, his tone very serious, and said, Juan, I would like to have some grains because I have no idea how it tastes. Imagine if it doesn't taste good. (laughs) And it's incredible. He threw himself into it blindly, invested his own money, and he had never even tried this marine grain. Seems like you'd go down there and just take a pinch. Like, well, you know, you can get a little bit and make sure before you invest all this money Mm -hmm. in growing a whole garden's worth of it. Yeah, but clearly this person, this guy is a trailblazer, a visionary, and he has an idea and he just goes for it. I mean, it seems like he has an instinct for the sea, honestly. Yeah. Um, Because what he does next is he puts the grain through a battery of recipes, grinding it to make flour for bread and pasta, and steeping it in flavors to mimic Spain's classic rice dishes. He says, it's interesting, when you eat it with the husk, similar to brown rice, it has a hint of the sea at the end. Mm. But without the husk, you don't taste the sea, which, Mm. you know, naturally salted rice, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. And the plant's impact could stretch much further capable of capturing carbon 35 times faster than tropical rainforests and described Mm. by the WWF as an incredible tool in fighting the climate crisis, seagrass absorbs 10% of the ocean's carbon annually, despite covering just 0.2% of the seabed. It is an initiative riddled with challenges because wild seagrass meadows have been dying off at an alarming rate in recent decades, Mm. while few researchers have managed to successfully transplant and grow seagrass. Mm. In southern Spain, however, the team's first marine garden suggests potential average harvests could be about 3.5 tons a hectare, 
And while this yield is about a third of what one could achieve with rice, Leon points to the potential for low cost and environmentally friendly cultivation. Well, and yeah, it uses seawater. That's yeah. huge. The fact mm-hmm. that you can water it with seawater is massive. Exactly. And he points out if nature gifts you with 3,500 kilograms without doing anything, no antibiotics, no fertilizer, just seawater and movement, then we have a project that suggests one can cultivate marine grain. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. If someone gives me a dish, I'll try it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple photos in the article. It looks very much like regular seaweed, but has little bits of grain in it. And then there's a pile of the entire grain. It pretty much just looks like greenish wild rice. Like the ends are a little bit more rounded than a lot of rice that we have, which are a little more sharp. Mm -hmm. But it looks perfectly much like rice that I'd I'd eat for sure. So yeah, yeah. I've always liked eating rice with like seaweed on top, Mm -hmm. you know, like the Mm -hmm. Korean kind of corn oil fried salted seaweed. Right? Doesn't that sound amazing? Yeah, like it's already built in. You don't even have to put the sprinkles on it's already there and i know that seaweed (laughs) tends to have really high levels of selenium which is a critical Mm -hmm. mineral that a lot of like vegetarians and vegans have to supplement with yeah you know maybe in a couple years we'll all be all about the sea grain i'm on the sea grain exclusive diet y'all i can't (laughs) (laughs) next link next link All right. Well, Max Kozlov at Quanta Magazine has written one of those articles that just makes you shake your head in amazement at the complexity of the human body. So we start back in 2008 when geneticist Sam Bajati was working in the maternity ward of a hospital. And against all odds, a woman gave birth to a normal, healthy baby. It was against all odds because this woman in particular had been screened for several genetic diseases and a DNA sample from her baby's placenta had shown a fatal abnormality in chromosome 13. Her baby was not supposed to live, and yet here it was, completely genetically normal. Yeah, you know, good news for her. So at the time, doctors declared it to be a case of confined placental mosaicism, or CPM, in which small patches of the placenta have a different genome than the baby itself. Whoa. Yeah, it was highly unusual and very understudied, but doctors had known about the condition for a few decades, and most estimates at the time believed that it occurred in about 2% of pregnancies. But the thing is, we don't actually DNA test babies in the womb all that frequently because there are some risks involved, and Mm -hmm. generally there's no reason to unless doctors suspect a genetic abnormality runs in the family. But Sam Bajati was sort of moved by this early experience and decided he wanted to get deeper into this CPM phenomenon. And so now, in a new study published in Nature, he and his colleagues have shown that CPM is not only more common than we thought, it's actually present in nearly all pregnancies (gasps) and may actually play a crucial role in the development of childhood cancers. Wow. So... Bajati took 86 samples from 37 placentas, basically rerunning the DNA test two to three times on each pregnancy in the study, and found that every single one was unique. Like every time he dipped in there, he got different DNA. And when he compared the samples to the eventual babies that were born, he looked at the whole genome, not just the big markers for major diseases that doctors had been usually looking for. And he found that the placental DNA samples were chock full of genetic aberrations from beginning to end, mostly the kind that cause cancer. He described it as a quilt of small tumors that had somehow turned into a working organ every time. Yeah, which is a little weird to think about. But, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, as weird as it is, Bajati said it actually answers a longstanding question in the genetics field about why mammals have placentas at all. Mm -hmm. Because evolutionarily, they don't make sense. 
The mother invests huge resources in developing this secondary organ alongside the whole baby she's also trying to make. And then when the baby's born, the whole thing is just thrown out, right? It's Mm -hmm. incredibly wasteful. Mm -hmm. But when Bajati and his co-authors compared the placental DNA to the stem cells in the baby's umbilical cords, they found that the two sets of cells start differentiating much earlier in development than previously thought, as early Mm. as the first few cell divisions. And they theorize that what's actually happening is that when a cell division results in an error, that cell is deliberately shunted over to become part of the placenta instead. So the placenta becomes this sort of dumping ground for all the Mm. mistakes to ensure a healthy pregnancy. Mm. So it's like a pregnancy compost pile? Yeah, kind of. Well, I wonder what the people who tend to like freeze dry and consume the placenta. Right. Ooh. Yeah, that's maybe not a great idea. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Whether it was a good idea to begin with was never mind. Anyway, right, right. It was already a bad idea. Now it's an even worse idea. <laughs> and you know, of course, there's always the possibility of like, oh no, no, the placenta is doing its own thing. It's not that this sort of differentiation is happening at the cell level. But one specific example they gave to support their theory was a case in which patches of a particular placenta had three copies of chromosome ten two from the mother and one from the father. If a baby had actually been born with this abnormality, doctors would assume that the error came from an accidental doubling of the mother's chromosome because Mm -hmm. you're supposed to have one of each, right? Mm -hmm. But when they tested the baby in question, which was healthy, they found that it actually had two chromosomes from the mother and none from the father. They said this indicates that the error was inherent in the egg and was corrected for during development by setting aside cells that had successfully incorporated the dad's DNA, which should have been most of them, Mm -hmm. and instead keeping and building off of one cell in particular that happened to have a second error, no dad DNA, that made up for the first and left them with just two chromosomes. Mm -hmm. They said the odds of that happening by random chance are incredibly low unless there's some sort of deliberate sorting mechanism going on. And, you know, going back to the evolutionary question, Bajati said it's fine for the placenta to be full of these abnormalities precisely because it doesn't have to last very long. Mm. As Bajati put it, quote, it can live fast and die young. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, the more they looked at it, the more they realized that acting like a tumor is actually beneficial to the placenta. For a successful pregnancy, the placenta must avoid the mother's immune system, invade her cells and tap into her blood supply and then create its own network of blood vessels all of which cancer cells do as well. Hmm. The key difference between a placenta and a tumor is that the placenta knows when to stop growing, meaning there's something that inhibits the cancer-like behavior about six months in. And if doctors could identify that mechanism, that might open the door to a whole new realm of cancer treatments. Hmm. So, you know, it kind of is a backdoor to something he wasn't looking for in the first place. He's trying to figure out, well, why why do we have these genetic anomalies in these kids? And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, by the way, I might have just completely invented a new way to detect <laughs> cancer and defeat it. Like, <laughs> well, yay. And, you know, I think it also highlights the fact that most mothers would say, like, children are parasites and <laughs> they sap everything out of you and they grow like a tumor. Yeah. So I don't think it's that wild. How interesting. Wait, so are we saying that a potential way to cure cancer is to grow placentas? 
uh, to use the same thing that tells a placenta to stop growing before we throw it in the garbage. Ah, okay. That makes more sense. (laughs) Whatever magical stop growing juice they use, we could (laughs) potentially inject it into an existing tumor and not freeze dry it and eat it because that would still be very gross. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Good. Because I don't know how to grow a placenta, so I'm glad that there are still options. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Well, the islanders in the Seychelles are rallying to save the world's biggest seed, according to The Guardian. They are nuts for Coco de Mer. (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you that this is worth looking up, if only for the photos, because it looks like an extremely salacious, suggestive section (laughs) of somebody bending over. And, I, you know, maybe I'm projecting, maybe this is just sort of the way it is, but I always get delighted when I see pictures of carrots that look like a leg crossing or, you know, a tree that it just... This this is worth seeing. So you're saying it looks like a giant peach emoji is what you're saying. Yes, yes, but kind of leathery and enormous. I mean, it, it's from a rare palm. It's often sold as souvenirs, but apparently they're prized by tourists because of this suggestive shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the locals are trying to help save it in a new planting scheme. It's a much-loved cultural and botanical icon of the Seychelles. It's also known as the sea coconut or double coconut, and it's endemic to these islands and produces the largest and heaviest seeds in the whole world, which is a fascinating case of island gigantism. Mm. It's found growing naturally on only two of the Seychelles' 115 islands. And with only about 8,000 mature trees in existence today, it's been named as endangered. And apparently it's also dioecious. So it has separate male and female plants that can take up to 50 years to reach sexual maturity, depending on environmental conditions. And before the pandemic, there was also a thriving black market for the shell, which led to poaching in protected areas. But there are also other climate threats like forest fires, erratic rainfall, pests, and disease. So conservationists have turned to the islanders to help secure the palm's future. They launched a scheme last summer where residents were invited to apply for permission to plant up to five coco de mer seeds each on their property. They noticed that, you know, people were stealing them. There are poachers, there are anti-poaching banners and billboards all over the islands. But, you know, it's probably just because it's a popular tourist souvenir owing to its suggestive shape. Yeah, if it makes money, people are going to constantly go after it. You might as well try to grow as many as you can. Exactly. And so what they're hoping is that the islanders will have a chance to legitimately grow coco de mer plants instead of maybe harvesting them and kind of taking them illicitly. And since 1978, the trade in coco de mer nuts has been controlled via a permit system. So if you grow the palm Mm -hmm. on your property or even trade it, you have to be registered. Each nut is numbered and tracked. Even the coco de mer shells are sold to tourists for anywhere between 170 to 200 pounds, and they still have to come with the permit. So the sad thing is for most of the Seychelles' residents, it's not accessible at these prices, right? Sure. So they reasoned, you know, if we give away the nuts in a planned manner, then the incentives for stealing them is not there. So if you want to participate and you live in the Seychelles, you have to (laughs) submit a detailed form along with payment of 500 Seychellois rupees, which is not very much, to qualify to plant the seeds on the property. And then when the palm gets to be 25 to 35 meters high, the property has to have a minimum area of 10 by 10 meters available per seed. The staff is going to visit each property to evaluate size, soil type, and decide if the applicant is eligible to plant as well as how many seeds could be accommodated. The demand has been huge. They thought there would be interest for about 30 nuts, but they've received 104 requests 
for 422 nuts. Hey. Yeah. And it's all over the, the Seychelles Islands as well. So it's been put on hold because of the pandemic. But with the pandemic hopefully coming to a close or at least manageable, they will also be noting the GPS coordinates of the place of where each seed is planted. It's gone very wow. high tech. But for people who have coconut mare seeds planted on the properties, they are super happy, super thrilled. And again, go check out the pictures. You can understand why. <laughs> so, do, I mean, I assume they taste mostly like a regular coconut, right? Do we know? Does it, Do we have any idea what they taste like? <laughs> or is it so rare that no one's ever written down the experience? You know, it's um, the souvenir nuts are not viable. The fleshy kernel inside the shell is usually removed and then processed separately for sale in East Asia because they believe it's an aphrodisiac. So it's... Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. if you can make more money off of people who think it's going to help you perform in your amorous right. desires, then yeah, you know where it's going to go. <laughs> Okay, so so here's what we're going to do. We're going to move to the Seychelles. We're going to plant a bunch of seagrass for grains. Oh, yes. We're going to get a couple of these double coconut trees in mm -hmm. our yard. I'm game, man. <laughs> and then we're going to speed run it and broadcast yeah. it. <laughs> and then we'll create NFTs of the work so people can enjoy our new There homesteads. you go. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Mm -hmm. That's way better than working placentas back in. That was <laughs> <laughs> so I will say that uh, if you decide to Google Coco de Mer at work, there's also a uh, lingerie brand that uh -oh. Apple seems to auto-suggest to, so maybe use your phone <laughs> off right. the network uh, just in case. What a clever lingerie maker to know to take that name, though, for their stuff. That's right, but it's <laughs> subtle. Yeah, that's a lot classier than some brand names could be, for sure. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> all right, well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Researchers create light waves that can penetrate even opaque materials. How do scientists build the best diet for astronauts? And Atlantic Dawn, the ship from hell. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our ad-free content and would like to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.